0: David is the king against which all other kings in Israel were evaluated, and no other king even comes close, nor will they ever come close until the next king of Israel, and that's the king of kings and lord of lords, Jesus Christ himself. And then Jesus Christ will, of course, be the final standard against which all others are measured. David was anointed the future king of Israel when he was a young teenager, but he waited patiently while God trained him For the position, he had some flashes of brilliance from the beginning. To be sure, he fought Goliath when everyone else ran away. When Saul should have been doing that, even as a young teenager, he still fights Goliath or as an eighteen year old. So we see that he performed great acts of courage that set him apart from his peers. But personal courage alone did not qualify him to lead Israel. After killing Goliath, you'll recall that his story is sprinkled with successes and failures. And up until now, it's been almost 50-50, hasn't it, with successes and failures since that time. To put this in a little bit of perspective, almost 12 years have passed between the time that David has killed Goliath and the passage that we study tonight. Over those 12 years, God taught him how to lead his nation. God spent over a decade training him to be the king of Israel. And one of the things that he trained David about is one of the key things to leadership, and that is that a leader, a great leader, is not selfish. A great leader is selfless. Our Lord himself demonstrated that in his time on earth. David was courageous, I think we would all agree, but he needed to learn humility. He was brave. But he needed to develop a deep empathy for those that he was to lead. He possessed integrity, but that integrity needed to mature. Students of history are well aware of how often individuals are thrust into leadership roles when they are anything but ready. Oftentimes in European history, you see people were thrust into the role of king or queen simply by birthright, not because they had been gifted in any special way for leadership, and oftentimes that had disastrous consequences on the nation. Their primary concern oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes was for themselves and for their own comfort. And they didn't take hardly any time to look and see what the people needed, what the country needed. So their primary concern was for themselves, not for the people that they led. And that was evident in many of the monarchs of Europe, but I have to say it's evident sometimes in even our own elected officials today. We wonder sometimes why people will spend a million, two million, three million, ten million dollars of their own money to get elected. Well, it's either because they're a great patriot, and I know of at least one that's doing that right now. It's either because they're a great patriot or because they think that there's something in it for them. You know, I pray that the Lord would give us wisdom to figure out who's who. A true leader does not look at the lead like they were simply pieces on a chessboard be manipulated. They are real people with real families. And if they die in battle, there are real consequences for those families, for their deaths. When a leader asks someone to put themselves in a position where they might die for their country or die for a cause, it had better be a cause worth dying for. And the sacrifice must be truly appreciated by those who are left behind. I understand that after the military action that Followed 9/11, President Bush met personally at least once a week, every week for the remainder of his presidency, with the family of one of the men or women who was killed in battle. The accounts of these meetings from eyewitnesses are gut wrenching. But President Bush understood if he had the re- if he was going to send them out, he had the responsibility to look after these people after they gave the ultimate sacrifice their country. There were no cameras there at the vast majority of these meetings. They weren't allowed. It wasn't a photo op. It was a serious leader, seriously comforting the families of those who had lost a loved one. Great leaders appreciate the sacrifice that others make for them and for their nation. I think this short clip that I'm about to show from a HBO film called Into the Storm illustrates this point quite well. Just a tiny bit of background. It's only about a 30-second clip, so you're going to have to listen very carefully. The Victoria Cross is the highest military decoration given for valor in Great Britain. The scene that I'm going to show you, this very short scene, depicts Winston Churchill giving this honor to a man who had served bravely in the Battle of Britain. I want you to listen carefully as Churchill expresses his appreciation for this hero. Wing Commander Maddox. Yes, sir. Victoria Cross. Yes, sir. It is ordained that the Victoria Cross shall only be awarded for most conspicuous bravery, or some preeminent act of valor, or self-sacrifice, or extreme devotion to duty in the presence of the enemy. Isn't that what he says in the royal warrant? Yes, sir battle of Britain was won by men like you. This country owes you its life and liberty. You feel very humble and awkward in my presence, don't you? Yes, sir. Then you can imagine how humble and awkward I feel in yours. If you recall, in our last session, Saul, Jonathan, and two of his brothers died on Mount Gilboa. Saul didn't finish his life well, as we saw there, and he doubled down on failure and consulted a medium rather than the Lord in order to find out what his fate would be. What I want to do tonight is transport us back in time. Just a bit, and consider chapters 29 and 30 of 1 Samuel. Here we're going to observe what David was doing while Saul was consulting the witch at Endor, and while Saul, Jonathan, and his brothers were dying in the north part of Israel. And in doing so, we're going to see something of David's integrity in leadership, something of his empathy in leadership, and something of his wisdom. As a leader, he grew into this role. He was brave to begin with, but he grew into the role of a great leader. As chapter 29 opens, David has been living in Philistine territory for a little over a year, 14 months to be specific. As the Philistines decide that they're going to attack to the north Saul's troops, and they gather together to meet Saul in battle, David and his men, who are living in Philistine territory in a little town called Ziklag, if you'll remember, they moved themselves into the rear of the line. And when the Philistine commanders, other than King Achish, see that David and his Hebrews, that's the term that people outside of Israel called the Jews, when they saw that his Hebrews had joined the line, they said, whoa, wait a minute, what's going on here? Achish says, well, these are good men. They've been with me for a while. They've been protecting this, the southern flank. And the other generals say, no way. No way, no how. We've heard of this David. He's the one that has killed ten thousands of us, as they said. And we're going to put him at our the rear of our line? I don't think so. They thought what would happen if they go up to Mount Gilboa with David leading the rear, then they're going to be sandwiched in between Saul and David. And they were probably right. The text never tells us specifically, but they were probably right. It's incomprehensible, inconceivable for us to think that David would have fought against Israel, knowing that he was going to be the next king. So these fellows were probably right. So David and his men are left behind as the Philistine army marches toward Saul at Jezreel. David's return is providential. For when he gets back to Ziklag, his home base, Uh, which was a Philistine town that Achish had given him and his men to live in, his 600 mighty men and their families, he finds that the Amalekites had raided the city or the town and they had burned it to the ground. I draw your attention to the map that's on the board right now. The star, the purple star, is where David and the Philistine commanders separate. You'll see that they're actually in the southern part of what is Israel here right now. This is the Dead Sea. They're about level with the Dead Sea when they meet up. This is the northern border of the Philistine territory. They've got quite a jaunt to get up to this maroon circle, which is Mount Gilboa. This is where that battle will take place. You see it's in the north part of Israel. David and his men separate, and they go back to Ziklag, which is a much closer location. It still takes them a couple days to get there, but it's much closer than what... The Philistines had to travel to meet Saul. When they get to Ziklag, they find the town empty, and they found the town burned to the ground. And now that's where we pick up the narrative in in chapter 30, verses 2 through 5. And they took captive the men and the women and all who were in it. This is the Amalekites. Both small and great, without killing anyone, and carried them off and went their way. Then David and the people who were with him lifted their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. Have you ever wept like that? Where you're so upset you, you finally get to a point where you can't even weep anymore. I know many of you have because you've told me you've been in that position. That's the position that they went. Think about this for a minute. They were following David, the man that they felt like was their leader. While they're gone doing something that David wanted them to do. The raiders, the Amalekites that came from below here, actually, the, which would be at the bottom of the stream, they come up and they take, they burn David's town and take all the women and children and all the goods with them. Now, they didn't just do it to this town, although this text is not talking about it here. They did it to all the towns that were in the southern part of Judea. So they had done this in, in a pretty big way. The Amalekites were part of the people that David himself had gone and caused some great trouble to before. So they're probably understanding that David's gone We're going to swoop in. We're going to take this town by storm while he's gone. So him helping the Philistines, or at least being gone, he pays a terrible price for that. In verse 5, now David's two wives have been taken captive, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. Remember her. He's going to pick back up one Michal a little bit later, but right now he's got these two wives. They're taken away as well. This is a terrible situation for David. terrible situation for all the men here. In fact, we see empathy in verse 4. It wasn't just one or two people. All the men were weeping till they could weep no more. Even if they didn't have a family, they were still weeping in empathy for those that did. Solomon will write later, we need to laugh with those who laugh and we need to weep with those who weep. I think sometimes we have a problem with both of those. We have a trouble with rejoicing with those who rejoice because sometimes we're a little bit upset that they're doing well and we're not. And we have an even more difficult time weeping with those two weeks because we don't want to invest emotionally in other people. I hate to tell you, folks, but that's part of the deal. It's part of the package. If you hold yourself back from that activity, and I know people have different personality types. I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about holding yourself back emotionally from someone. You're not really loving them. And David and his men all loved one another. We're going to see that not all of them were really great men. But at this point, they had something in common, and they all had empathy for one another. Look at verse 6, and we'll see David's faith come out, because he's in a bind right now. Remember, these are not just regular guys that he's picked up. These are 600 mighty men, 600 warriors. Some of them were probably criminals. They were on the run from other places. But these are 600 bad boys, and he's got 600 people that are a little bit upset with him. Look at verse 6. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. For all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. This is a tough spot for David. These are not just regular guys. These are guys that could take David out. It's one thing to be brave and to be courageous when you've got the upper hand. But he doesn't have the upper hand here. Well, actually he does because he and the Lord make a majority. And that's what he understood. From a human perspective, though, this looks pretty dark. But David, and I love the way the text reads there. The other men were embittered, but David. The other men wanted to kill him, but David. David inquired of the Lord. This is where he begins to show an incredible contrast between himself and Saul. Saul's in a critical situation too, isn't he? When he's up on Mount Gilboa. You remember that from a few weeks ago? He's in a situation where the Philistines are probably going to win that battle from a human perspective. But Saul had quit inquiring of the Lord a long time ago. And then when he went when he wanted to go back to the Lord at the last minute, almost like he was a genie in the bottle, the Lord says no. So instead of inquiring of the Lord and insisting that the Lord help him, he goes and inquires of a medium. The witch, if you will who he's banned from the country previously by his own decree. There's an incredible contrast here. And Saul is scared to death. Uh, David was distressed, but David's courageous. Now, he's not just courageous like he was with Goliath. There's maturity that has been added to his courage here. And we see that throughout this text. David is a more, more mature person than he was 12 years ago. So he inquired of the Lord. David's source of strength was not a political alliance, but a spiritual one. He found his strength to go on in the Lord. Now, I don't know what situation you're facing. I know what some of you are. But I don't know what everybody's facing. But I'm guaranteeing you, even though most everybody in here looks really well tonight, and you you don't look like the weight of the world's on on your shoulders, but I know in each life in here, there, there are stresses. I saw in Drudge Report today, stress is the new bubonic plague. Did you read that? (laughs) Because it's killing so many people. All of us have our stresses. Now listen, watch. There are different ways that even Christians handle those stresses. We can handle those by getting ourselves a hobby that seems rather benign, but that will take all of our time and all of our mental energy away from whatever it is that's stressing us or whatever pain we have in our lives, and we cannot think about it because we're so engrossed in this hobby, whatever it may be. I'm not going to name them because you may have picked that hobby. (laughs) Or, one step down, not up, we can handle it through some sort of drug or alcohol. Here I'm not talking about a properly prescribed medication from a medical doctor. We're not talking about that for a medical condition. I'm talking about taking some drug, legal or illegal, just to cover up the pain and not dealing with the pain. That's not the most spiritual answer that we could have. Once more, just for the record, I'm not talking about medications for properly diagnosed and then medication prescribed for, for medical conditions. We're not talking about that. But when we want to drown our problem in alcohol, we're turning to the alcohol for the, the solution to our problem and not the Lord, that is not a spiritually mature thing to do. David doesn't find his strength in alcohol. He doesn't find his strength by going out and uh, getting him a great hobby. He doesn't find his strength by making some political alliance. He finds his strength by going straight to the source of all strength, and that's to the Lord. These next two verses record David going to the Lord for counsel, not not with a medium as Saul had done, but in prayer as we all should do. When the Lord gives him the green light to pursue the Amalekites, he moves out with his 600 men. Here he exercises faith and faithfulness. In verse 4, he, he exercised empathy. One quality of a great leader. Now we see him emphasize faith. Extremely important quality for a spiritual leader. Now in verse 10. But David pursued... He and his 400 men, for 200 who were too exhausted to cross the brook Bezor, remained behind. I want you to think about this for a minute. David had mustered his men together, and they were about to join the battle lines to go all the way up to Mount Gilboa to fight in the fight that we studied last time we met. David and his men had already marched back a couple, two or three days. They're tired. They find their town burned. They have been overcome with emotion, and if you have ever wept until you can't weep anymore, you also know that that's not probably the best time to go out and run Memorial Park. Pretty tough to do it. You certainly wouldn't want to run a marathon, and you probably wouldn't want to put on your sword and chase down the Amalekites. It's going to be tough. 200 of the 600 men can't do it. It's not because they're cowardly. It's not because they're weak-minded or weak-kneed. It's because they're physically and emotionally exhausted. But David can't wait. Ideally, it would have been wonderful if David could have stopped at this brook and said, okay, let's all catch our breath. And then a week from now, once we've been refreshed and we're ready and we've made our plans, then we'll all go after the Amalekites. He had no time to wait. So he does the only thing he could as a wise leader. He leaves behind in Ziklag, or actually just south of Ziklag, he leaves behind 200 of the 400 men and proceeds on with his pursuit of the Amalekites. Again, I want to stress there is no indication here, ever in this text, that these 200 men who were left behind were anything but brave. They were just tired. And That is key to understanding this text. So David proceeds on here, and this is an example of David's decisiveness. Along the way, after David has left the 200 behind and is proceeding south, because that's where the Amalekites were, along the way in this pursuit, David runs into an Egyptian slave. He had been a slave of the Amalekites who had actually burned down the village. He wasn't a soldier. He was a slave. And this was a slave who had become either weak or ill. And the Amalekites instead of putting him on some sort of gurney and taking him with them, the Amalekites who the Amalekite who is the master of this slave just leaves him behind to starve to death and probably be killed because the Amalekites knew David would come back sometime and find out what had happened. They just didn't expect him back. This soon David talks to this man. And to his credit, he doesn't kill him. Sometimes we just think David was this killing machine. Only when it was appropriate, if I could say that. And it wasn't appropriate here. This man was a slave of someone who had burned his village. This man was worth much more to David alive than dead. David treats this man with compassion. He feeds him, and he makes a deal with him. You tell us where they've gone. And you live. The Egyptian, who is the slave of the Amalekite, wants some sort of guarantee. David gives him his word You show us where they are, I'm not going to kill you. And that's exactly what happens. He treats the man well, the man points out where the Amalekites were. Skipping down then to verse 16. And when he had brought him down, behold, they were spread all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. That's why I said a moment ago, it wasn't just Ziklag that they had attacked. It was all this region. This was a border region. They had come come across the border and attacked the towns of Judah as well. When David finally catches up to him, to this group, this band of marauders that had burned Ziklag down and taken his family and the families of the other men there too, he finds them having a party. They're drunk. Their bellies are full. It's not the best way to prepare for battle. They're dancing. They're having a good time thinking that at best, David's probably not coming back for a few weeks. Well, guess what? They were wrong about that. Verse 17, this is what you, I'm sure, did expect. And David slaughtered them from twilight until the evening of the next day. This is a slaughter. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. So they had a pretty serious force that David defeated in terms of numbers. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and rescued his two wives. But nothing of theirs was missing, whether great or small, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that they had taken for themselves. David had brought it all back. Sometimes people wonder why. Why didn't they kill these captives? I'm sure they wanted to sell them into slavery. So the the people were worth more alive to them than they were dead. Verse 20, so David had captured all the sheep and cattle which the people drove ahead of their livestock, and they said, this is David's spoil. He's the leader. The people are so happy to get their wives and their children back that they say, this all belongs to you, David. Everything looks pretty good right now. They've had a great victory. Everybody kind of got what they wanted. Their families are back. They're going to make their way back up to Ziklag. And then the complainants started. They won the victory. And now in verses 21 through 25, David's leadership will be tested in a very serious way. Look at verse 21. When David came to the 200 men who were too exhausted to follow David, who had also been left at the brook Bezor, and they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him, then David approached the people and greeted them. Verse 22 is probably the key verse to understanding what David's going to do. So catch this. Then all the wicked and worthless men. Catch this now. Then all the wicked and worthless men among those who went with David answered and said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except to every man, his wife, and his children, that they may lead them away and depart. I hate to report this. But I have actually talked to Christians who have studied this passage that said, that makes sense. They didn't fight in the battle. Why should they get any of the material blessings? The problem with that thinking is that the divinely inspired author of this text calls them in the beginning of verse 22, wicked and worthless men. So as far as God's concerned, This type of fussing and griping and complaining and selfishness is uncalled for. Now, David's got a pretty serious leadership decision to make here. Once again, he's got 400 of the 600 people who were mighty men who just led a great slaughter that lasted almost a 24-hour period. Now he's got them mad at him once again. What's he going to do? Is he going to try to negotiate a compromise? That's what a lot of leaders do, and sometimes compromise is necessary. But is he going to try to negotiate a compromise? Okay, listen, you're right. They didn't go with us. They were too tired. They were too exhausted to go with us. Can't we just give them just at least a little bit so we may, maybe can get they can get a new herd started? Let's just each give them a couple sheep. You guys can have the rest. Would that work for you guys? Can we agree on that? That's not a leader. That's cowardice. In this situation, it's cowardice. Now, again, sometimes compromise is necessary to get the job done. But not here. So David said, understanding that they were dead wrong about this. In verse 23, David exercises faith again, and he does the right thing just because it's right. That's integrity. Really, if you want to summarize it, Into one pithy phrase, integrity is doing the right thing just because it's right. Not because it's expedient or not because it's profitable in terms of some sort of material prosperity or even some sort of deal-making with other people. Listen, I'm going to help you now. You help me later. That's not integrity. That's expediency. David does the right thing because it's right. In verse 23, then David said, you must not do so, my brothers. With what the Lord has given us, who has kept us and delivered us and delivered into our hand the band that came against us. You see David's maturity here? He realizes that even though we're the ones that went out and fought, who gave him the victory? God gave him the victory. Exactly. So who are these men to quibble that those guys didn't do enough? They're not recognizing the source of the victory. What happens to us too? When we start acting like a spiritual two year old and we grasp the things that we've earned that's mine, that's my money, that's my house, that's my car, and I'm not sharing any of it with you. Wicked and worthless men. That's a failure to recognize the source of our prosperity. It's saying that I somehow did it all, so I'll be the sovereign over what I have and decide what's going to go to somebody else. Think about what you're saying. You're leaving the Lord out of it altogether. You can relax. We're not going to pass the offering plate after this. I see a couple of you tensing up. Really, one lady put her purse under the table. Just saying, under the table. no, not after your money, but I'm after your heart. It doesn't belong to us. God gave it to us, and we ought to be extremely grateful for it. And we need to be good stewards of it, of course. But so many times, so many of us act like we earned it. We did it the old-fashioned way. We earned it. Well, yeah, you did. You worked hard, and I'm glad that you did. You worked smart, and I'm glad that you did. But listen, one of these days, we're going to realize that there are people out there that work just as hard and just as smart as the guy that lives next door to me. It doesn't work out for them. As Christians, we have our prosperity, ultimately, because God gave it to us. I'm standing in front of a bunch of people right now that are prosperous. I am prosperous. You go to other parts of the world, and you realize you are wealthy, beyond imagination. And God gave it to us. Verse 24, he exhibits fairness. And who will listen to you in this manner? For as his share is who goes down to battle, so his share shall be who stays with the baggage They shall share alike. We're all part of the same army. We're all part of the same force. And we're all going to share. In modern times, it would be equivalent to saying, well, that that person was a a cook that fed the army, so they should never be recognized for what they did in battle. Come on. You don't have a full, if you've got an empty stomach, rather, you're not going to fight nearly as well. Maybe you're the mechanic that works on the jeep, that carries the into to the front line. Under this principle, the whole army shares in the glory that comes from the victory, ultimately recognizing that God is the, should be the ultimate recipient of the glory. In verse 25, it lets us know that this became policy in Israel from that day forward. So there's not going to be any more arguing about this. Everybody that's in that army is going to share in the benefit of the victory. The Bible describes as wicked and worthless those who, first, refused to show kindness to those who were left behind, and second, for those who refused to recognize that the victory and the prosperity that came from that victory ultimately came from Yahweh. Wicked and worthless men. I don't ever. I don't want to be described that way. Certainly by a divine author somebody that knows what they're talking about. Sometimes people say things and they don't know, they have not the first clue what they're talking about. But for somebody that's got a clue, I don't want to be described that way. And I know you don't either. So those are the wicked and worthless men. No kindness and no recognition that God was the source of their prosperity. I want you to remember again that these were mighty men. If they had banded together, they could have taken out David from a human perspective. So this is serious. Yet he stands up to them. He knew the Lord was on his side and he was unafraid of them. A leader cannot allow fear to override doing what's right. So David's action becomes policy for Israel in the future. The remainder of the chapter records that David also sent some of the spoils because remember, more was taken than just what was taken in Ziglag, in other towns as well. He sent some of the spoils back to the other towns in Judah. So here he exercises generosity and wisdom. He knows nothing right now about the fact that Saul has probably been killed by the time that this raid takes place. But he does know someday he will be king over all Israel. And he has matured to the point where he realizes he needs to take care of everybody in Israel. He could have easily said, no, you guys didn't go down there. You guys are going to have to fend for yourself." But David doesn't do that. He takes care of the people that were under his leadership. He is selfless, not selfish. David's actions in this episode reveal that he is now ready to lead him.